When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and it is here at Crawford that Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. The Crawford School of Public Policy is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out the degree programs and the short courses that we have on offer. There's an incredible range of things that you can come and study with us, either here on campus or online, and you can find all of that information at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Last week, my pod partner, Anna Greta Hunter, spoke with Meg Keane and Henry Varature about how the Pacific Island region has responded to the COVID-19 crisis. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, do take a listen. It's a really great discussion. But today we want to continue our focus beyond Australia's borders and to look at what's happening in India, which has been experiencing one of the world's worst outbreaks of the virus over the past several weeks. It's horrifying to watch. To date, India has recorded over 26.5 million confirmed cases with nearly 300,000 deaths but the test positive rates are as high as 36% in Delhi alone in just last month, and so the true number of infections is likely to be far, far higher than the official figures. Today on the pod, we're going to talk through what happened in India during the first wave and then how we found ourselves in the situation that we're currently in. And I am delighted to be joined by two leading experts with extensive experience in public policy, public health and South Asia. And we're going to be asking how did the crisis in India get so out of control? And what can policymakers in the country and around the region learn from responses so far to ensure that we don't see these continued further waves of infections and the catastrophic impact that follows? So today in the studio with me, I have my dear colleague from the Crawford School, Dr. Azad Singh Bali. Bali is a senior lecturer in public policy at the Crawford School and also at ANU School of Politics and International Relations. His research and his teaching focuses on the intersection of public policy, public financial management and policy theory. 
Bali has written widely on issues around universal health care and welfare regimes across Asia. It's great to have you with us today. Welcome, Bali. Thanks, Sharon. Good to be here. And it's wonderful to have another ANU colleague from the um, College of Asia and the Pacific. I'm delighted to introduce Professor Asa Doran. Asi is the, a Professor of Anthropology and South Asia at the ANU School of Culture, History and Language. He's the founding director of the ANU South Asia Research Institute, and his areas of research interest include urban anthropology, development, environment and public health, media and technology. There's not a lot around South Asia that Asi hasn't worked on. Asi, it's so good to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you very much. So we will talk quite a bit today about the current situation in India, but we. But before we talk about what's happening now, I wanted to just work through what happened at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis in India. Bali, you pointed out in a recent piece in The Conversation that India went hard in the early days of the pandemic, becoming one of the first countries to implement a nationwide lockdown. Can you tell us a little about that lockdown, what happened and what restrictions were put in place immediately last year during that first wave? So India reported its first case of the coronavirus in early January when a student from who was studying in Wuhan could come back to India. Uh, but the sort of lockdown was introduced on the 24th of March last year when India had about 500 cases. And the response uh, to the lockdown was significant for several reasons. One was India had a very, very low tr- number of cases compared to what other countries in the world had. Second was it was introduced with a very relatively short heads up given to state governments and local administrations with limited consultation with these local governments. And most importantly, because healthcare in most federal societies is on a concurrent list with central governments and state governments work together. But in India, most health responsibilities are delivered by state governments. So there was limited consultation with the state governments uh, in introducing that that lockdown. So while the the response was swift and decisive and was celebrated internationally that here we have a prime minister who's taking this lock this uh pandemic seriously, the downside of that was that it didn't give a lot of time for many people, especially migrant workers, many daily wage earners to prepare for the pandemic uh and what we immediately saw was people queuing up to buy rations at the grocery stores, as as you saw in different parts of the world. They were afraid uh, if supplies would run out. Uh, and it took a while for the prime minister to sort of reassure the nation that, you know, that everything will, you should, you will still be able to go out and buy your supplies. You don't need to hoard up and you don't need to panic buy. But the brunt of the first wave of the lockdown was borne by the migrant migrant workers. So you you would have seen these abject images on your on, you know reported and on the television screens of migrant workers clustered at rail, railway stations, walking back with all that they have to their hometowns. You know, hundreds of kilometers, and it took them about two two and a half months or so to lay the concerns of the migrant workers to organize transportation for them. And the reason the migrant workers were going back home was because they're sort of daily wage earners and they were unsure of lives in the, in the urban metropolises. And if they'd be able to, you know, find a place to stay or they, they'd rather go back home and go back to their villages, at least they, um, they're sure of their shelter and of food. 
And presumably those people were already extremely vulnerable. You know, daily wage earners are earning very low wage, just likely to be living in poverty, yeah. perhaps not without secure housing and places to go into lockdown. Yeah. So I think the first wave of the lockdown, as not, so if I reflect back on how India is handling the first wave, I don't think it was anything different in the sense of all governments introduced series of lockdowns. The severity differed from country to country. But what the pandemic brought into sharper relief was the plight of the migrant worker and how they were sort of disaffected by India's social protection system, how they didn't have, you know, how existing formal arrangements such as of healthcare, of employment security or of food protection hadn't uh, reached out to them. Uh, see, you wrote a piece in May last year in Inside Story where you talked about exactly some of these issues and you talked about um, the ways in which continuing poverty undermined the responses to the first wave. And you also talked about the ways in which religious prejudice undermined responses to the first wave. Can you talk us through how those things were playing out? Yeah, no, that's a it's a good question. And I think what Bali was talking about, that how the, the pandemic exposed this kind of fault lines in India's health systems and the various measures that were applied at the time definitely targeted the most vulnerable uh, people. And it's a story about migrants and minorities, if if you want to put it in in, in kind of a uh, distill the issues that were exposed. And um Bali spoken about the, the 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 migrants. The minorities, of course, are the Muslim, the two hundred million strong um, minority in India. Which, when you have a pandemic and when someone needs to be scapegoated, as it were, they they were the one. It started with a with a kind of convention by. Um, a Muslim organization called the uh, Tablighi Jamaat uh, in Delhi, and they were tagged as the super spreaders. It wasn't such a large convention, but mind you, after that, they went to their different parts in India and overseas, and that gave a lot of fodder to Hindu radicals to tag these people as the super spreaders who are bringing corona everywhere uh, to India. And it spilled over to uh, social media, as I as I wrote at the time, and it was evident in in these uh, uh, social media platform, Corona Jihad, uh, Bio Jihad, and uh, these Muslims were actually in such a um, situation that they were very much both distrusting the state because the state is run by um, a party that's associated with these Hindu radical groups, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP. But also at the everyday level, when I was talking to friends in India, they told me that it was a real low point where Muslims were feeling very targeted and they were secluding themselves. They were very much afraid to go outside and did not want to be targeted. And also that meant they didn't want to report if they had any symptoms. So it was a kind of a vicious cycle at the time. And and of course, many of these uh, Muslims, or some of them are, are also poor migrant laborers like Bali was talking about. So it kind of compounded that issue. And that was the story of India in the so-called first wave. So by mid to late June of last year, India had the fourth largest number of cases globally and daily cases were growing incredibly quickly. On the first of that month, the country recorded over 7,700 cases. Um, but then on the, the 30th of June, by the end of the month, it was recording over 18,000. 
Asi, in June, you said that India had the opportunity to draw on lessons from the rest of the world and to to learn from that about how to deal with the, the pandemic effectively. Did India take that opportunity to learn from the rest of the world and, and what played out from June onwards? Well, you could uh, you could argue that it did in the sense that it it saw the lockdown and the other measures. But I think the the main problem is that India saw itself as kind of exceptional. Um, it was a surprise. Everybody was talking about India as the so called time bomb. It's going to happen, and when it didn't, people started being surprised. They said, "Okay, maybe the decisive action by the prime minister and the BJP." And uh, the structures they uh, put in place mean that India is actually not going to follow other countries. So this kind of idea of exceptionalism was one way in which Indians were thinking, or at least the government, that we're out of the woods or getting there. The second was another another uh, fallacy was the so-called hygiene hypothesis, the, the, the one that speaks about the fact that there's so much poverty and people's immune system has been trained to fend off all these bugs and viruses and so on, and therefore they're not afflicted by the, the same uh, kind of diseases that other people in the world are. So these kind of two you know, mixed to, to, the, to show why India is not... Uh, um, India's profile in the in the global uh, pandemic is not so high, but of course, uh, what, what was the government doing? I see to to counter some of those myths or fallacies that were emerging. Look, India is a very heterogeneous place. The central government is, in some cases also ruling in the states. There's some coordination, but in most cases in India, there's no coordination. And the states were doing one thing, the central government was doing another. And then we saw that actually the leaders that people look up to have been doing so there's you know there's uh, there's this kind of sacred trinity that happened in India where the leaders were first of all playing politics, I would say playing sports and uh, playing religion as it were, right? So in politics there were state elections in different places. Those state elections, the BJP sent its people to political rallies without actually observing uh, corona restrictions or measures. Hundreds of, then thousands of people side by side, shoulder to shoulder, without uh, observing these restrictions. Religion. We saw that the government itself was condoning and sanctioning and even encouraging religious uh, processions and festivals that, remember the Tablighi Jamaat, the, these super spreaders, they didn't follow the same thing in India with the Kumela. And I'm sure that the Bali will elaborate on this. The biggest festival in the world taking place in Hardiwar later on. And of course, in sports with cricket and T20, the people are talking about Narendra Modi cricket grounds where not, not just, just a few months ago, uh, uh, over what, 60,000, 60, 70,000 people were in this cricket ground, again, shoulder to shoulder without observing restrictions. So there was this kind of, we're, we're out of the woods, right? We, we are exceptional. And, and, and that had huge implications, uh, uh, across India for the spread of the virus. So the first wave peaked with nearly 100,000 cases um, in September last year before slowly subsiding, though they never returned to, to the pre-June levels. Bali, what did the government do um, to eventually bring the first wave under control? But where were the gaps that Asi's been talking about where things perhaps could have been done very differently? Yeah. So just to come in a bit before on what Asi was talking about, right, in the – 
that India was expected to be a time bomb when this was the worst possible uh, health disaster that would uh, to affect India and it would have massive ramifications because the larger context of this is that India doesn't have a really functional public health system. Uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity. So the southern states, Kerala, Tamil Nadu, for instance, perhaps do better and compare to similar, you know, the, the bottom spectrum of the OECD countries in terms of health outcomes. But you have the northern belt of Bihar, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh with the health out there health outcomes aren't that good and the public health system is often under a lot of strain. So, you know, many analysts when the pandemic was being reported early last year were talking about how if this were to affect India, it would really be a massive disaster. And by all accounts, you know, if you look at India's numbers and even if many analysts argue that they're underreported, given India's size, you know, its death rates or its infection rates on a per million basis are relatively low compared to what other countries experience. You didn't have the fatalities that you saw in, in Italy and in the UK, for instance. Um, so I'm sure this is, this is an epidemiological puzzle, which uh, analysts are going to write about, you know, ex post five years from now, what happened, what was it that contributed to, to the relatively shallow virulence of the pandemic in India. And Asi is exactly right. So there was a sense that we were over this. You saw these zero surveys, which essentially test for the prevalence of antibodies, that whether you've had infection, have you been exposed to the pandemic in the past? Have you been exposed to the novel coronavirus? And in, in, Indi in, in India, the uh, surveys from the ICMR, the Council for Medical Research, uh, suggested that in the most metropolises that at least 20 to 50 percent of the population had had prior exposure. So there were this series of competing ideas that perhaps we've had herd immunity or the other hypotheses that Asi mentioned, um, layered with the fact that there was pandemic fatigue setting in. You know, this was a very strict lockdown that had been introduced and gradually extended and it was a very centralized response initially in the sense that the prime minister's office and the central government controlled uh, what was happening in different parts of the world. And only towards June, July uh, and August, as the wave of infections began to subside, did they delegate more responsibility to, to these uh, local governments um, to sort of handle these containment zones or lockdowns within their own uh, jurisdictions. So coming back to the question of, you know, what went wrong with the second wave? What were these sort of gaps which the government had um, sort of overlooked? There were many of those, right? So as the first wave began to subside, the government decided to pursue an aggressive path of vaccine diplomacy, you know, and there's a, there's a very political conversation and discourse happening right now in India, to what extent has is that was that a misstep where the government should have prioritized rolling out those vaccines domestically as opposed to uh, sending them to different parts of the world. The second is there were many vectors of transmission, right? So religious events, for instance, um, even when the Tablighi Jamaat event happened, there were other other communities that had these events which contributed to the spread of uh, infections, but they weren't part of the national discourse at that point in time. Um, the third thing, they botched up the messaging. You saw ministers, senior cabinet ministers in public without masks, right, which is completely uh, unacceptable in the time of a, of a pandemic and in the times of a crisis. Um, and 
towards this year, you've seen just as the in in months in the first quarter, you've seen these large uh, statewide elections that occurred, layered with the religious festival, the Kumbh Mela, um, and even before that, in late last year, you saw these massive protests in uh, farmer protests uh, in the state of in the states of Haryana, Punjab, and New Delhi, where at least hundreds of thousands of farmers were protesting against the laws, uh, marketization laws that the government had introduced. But it's interesting. I think to to some extent, I'm sympathetic with the government in that it's genuinely an epidemiological puzzle. So you've had these agglomeration of, you know, um, hundred thousand people clustered without social distancing that hasn't created a super spreader event. But then you've had a religious festival that creates a super spreader event. So we just, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about the, the, the nature of how this pandemic has spread in India and which we will have to sort of recognize or understand better after a few years. We'll, there'll be I, these studies. I agree with you. And I think on the one hand, one, I am sympathetic with yeah. the government. On the other hand, exactly. I'm frustrated yeah. because there was a, there's a kind of arrogance about yeah. it, right? No. We've done it. We're unlike the rest of the yeah. world yeah. and we can keep going. And yeah. then Holi happened, the yeah. big festivals in March and so on yeah. and so forth. So it seemed like there were so many conflicting messages and Certainly, nobody was leading by example. Yeah, that's true. And even today, you know, we know from crises, right, that the, in this demonstrated leadership matters the most. The, you know, you've had examples of premiers fronting up for 100 days, addressing press conferences, reassuring people, reminding people, social distance, masks, it's important test. And you haven't seen that level of engagement. And you've had press people, you know, the Bharatiya Janata Party has put out its spokespeople in public, but they they do a very poor job of our articulating the government's message or reminding people. Um, and that's sort of layered with this attitude of we're invincible. Uh, in Davos in January 2021, the Indian Prime Minister said, you know, India is one of the most successful countries in the world. We're leading by example. We've, we're showing we're, we're not only taking care of our own people, but we're uh, Indian Indian made vaccines and uh, uh, India's efforts are laying out the infrastructure in other countries to saving those citizens. But so that sort of betrayed those expectations of what's happening back home. Right? Um, and I think there's just layers of being invincible or that we're over this. Mm -hmm. The pharmacy of the world, as it were. Yeah. You were describing what happened, Bali. You talked about the difference across India and you uh, referred to to the states in the south doing somewhat better, you know, Tamil Nadu and yeah. Kerala. Uh, so you've um, you've written in that inside um, story piece um, about the ways in which Kerala led the way in a coordinated response in the first wave. And recent reports have suggested that Kerala is managing the current situation better than elsewhere. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, how is it that Kerala is doing better and what makes it so different from other parts of the country? Kerala is, is that kind of, the, they call it, uh, Robin Jeffrey has called it the, the Kerala model. It's perhaps the most uh, so-called developed uh, state in India. Of course, it's got the highest literacy in India. It's a, a place with a government, a ruling government, which is a very much a left government, a communist government. And it has very skilled and resourceful people at the helm. So at the time, the Minister for Health, she was very much on top of that. Uh, she was um, 
organizing and ensuring that people follow, follow the COVID restrictions. Kerala went into lockdown quite early and people were very much observant of this. Now, Kerala has a different problem, of course, is that a lot of people from Kerala are from other places or they're migrants coming from the Gulf and migrants that are going there to earn their, their keep and bringing it back. And once lockdown came and they brought back those migrants, those migrants as well were a kind of, um, you know, the boundaries became much more porous. Likewise, because Kerala is located where it is located, you've got a lot of migrant workers who are living in, and working in Kerala, and they also uh, were vectors of the disease, as it were. So it wasn't, so on the one hand, Kerala was very much uh, successful because of its infrastructure, because of its health uh, system, because of its governance and uh, literacy. On the other hand, there were these kind of objective circumstances that meant that it couldn't really seal itself off from India. And so we are seeing Kerala actually as one of the most hardest hit states in India, current, especially in the second wave. But Bali can perhaps elaborate. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. So initially, Kerala handled the block, the first wave very well. The central government, even though they sort of had a political conflict with the, the government back there, recognized that that's a model that perhaps many governments could follow. And they had a series of instruments that they used. You know, they had very aggressive test and trace. They had a lot of community engagement, for instance. So they had um, these local volunteers that would go out and remind people again, you know, you, that this house has got people under quarantine, you're not supposed to go near it, for example, or make sure that there were no, there wasn't a need for people to exit the house by providing them rations or uh, bringing by groceries for them. Uh, but you, just the sheer scale of the numbers in India, these models really didn't hold up because they couldn't be scaled up. But what we've seen across the pandemic in India, these pockets of excellence in different parts of the world where real real bureaucratic entrepreneurs have sort of stepped up. So, for example, in the northern city of Chandigarh, you've got the local uh, district administrator bringing by an ATM on a truck and going from house to house. So, for example, people wouldn't have to queue at the ATM, right? And that's a very high-income city. But even in other parts, in Maharashtra, there's this, there was an IAS officer, which is the Indian Administrative Service. It's a card of, uh, of civil servants that have sort of stepped up and thought of, okay, what's the worst-case scenario that happens? And we, if it's a second wave that happens again, we need to think about oxygen supplies and thought about, okay, how do we get oxygen over here where we don't manufacture it? So you've seen these pockets of um, excellence that have emerged where they've come up with sort of innovative solutions and to respond to the pandemic. But I think that India is so heterogeneous and so vast that it's really difficult to generalize from one more, one approach of responding to the pandemic and thinking about if that can be scaled up nationally. I think that's a perfect place for us to take a short break. Asi and, and Bali, it's been a fantastic conversation and listeners, don't go away. We will be back in just a minute to continue this and to look at what's happening at the moment in India. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Dr. Azad Singh Bali and Professor Asa Doran talking about the ways in which uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus have impacted on India in such a devastating way. Just before the break, um, we were talking about, Bali, what you described as the pockets of excellence that we saw kind of emerge during that first wave. Of course, now we find ourselves in uh, a, an awful situation in India. The numbers currently are staggering. In early May uh, 2021, the country was recording in excess of 400,000 cases per day, far in excess of what any other country had had to deal with. This huge increase in COVID-19 infections had also led to a rapid and a horrifying jump in the death toll, with India recording over 3,700 fatalities on the 22nd of May. And I think this is just unimaginable. We try to get our heads around what this means for people's lives. And those numbers can never tell us sort of what that devastation is causing in an everyday sense. But Bali, I, I wanted to come back to this idea of, of the centres of, of, of excellence, as you called them, you know, those pockets where things were, were were happening well during the first wave. How are those places holding up now under the intense pressure that we're seeing? Yeah, so not very well. So that's, and this will, uh, you know, that's what I was trying to to make the point that with this, this sheer scale of the numbers that we're seeing in India right now, that any system will be overwhelmed. Uh, if you're reporting 400,000 cases um, a day, the numbers have come down a bit this week, and we hopefully that will de- continue to decline, and the system will be able to, to withstand those pressures a bit more. Uh, and the, those pockets of excellence aren't really... Uh, those pockets of excellence that I spoke about aren't really holding up well, but I'm sure that there are newer pockets of excellence that will emerge in responding to this, uh, the second wave, uh, in the crisis. But I think we need to put this, 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 the, this into some of a larger context, right? Because many people, many of our listeners who will be listening to this today, uh, have been seeing images of ICUs overwhelmed, uh, on their, on the television screens of people, multiple patients to a hospital bed, people clamoring for hospital, uh, hospital beds or even for oxygen supplies. So to some extent, this is, and this is true, but it's also not the health crisis you're seeing is not something very new in India. For the past 20 or 30 years, India has always had a very poor public health system. And I must bring a nuance, a caveat there, which is the states such as Kerala and Tamil Nadu and some of the other states are doing much better, right? And they that's not representative of them. But by and large, India's public health system is dilapidated. You would have surgeries being postponed because of doctors in unavailability or the lack of oxygen supplies or multiple patients to an ICU bed. The public system has always been under immense amount of pressure and performs very poorly. Anybody who has had who has money in India or who has access to money in India bypasses the public system, takes on debt and goes to the private system. This time around, what is different in India's health policy crisis is the private system hasn't stepped up. 
Private hospitals are afraid. Their doctors haven't come to work, for instance, and the government doesn't have that oversight over them to require of them, or they just don't have the capacity, or only very large private hospitals are doing this. So the average private hospital that was the so that was the interface with somebody who was sick is closed. So for the first time, India's elite, India's middle class has had to confront a broken public health system, where in the past they would just go to this ex- this fancy private system and deal leave the public system for the bottom sections of society. And that's why healthcare has never been a political problem in India, so to speak. But this time it has represented itself uh, as a political problem for the government. And you see them sort of stepping up right now and trying to release some of these pressure points of um, getting more oxygen, more supplies, etc., so I just wanted to bring that layer of context of what's happening in India. That's an excellent point. And what it also reveals to us is that this this is a crisis that actually afflicts everyone, mm-hmm. right? So the virus doesn't distinguish uh, between the rich and the poor. It doesn't look at your bank check, right? And that's perhaps the key issue in this second wave, where you have this anger, frustration, mistrust in government about the handling of the situation, and it cuts across class. So even people that are middle, upper classes who were very much supporters of the current government, the BJP, are turning back and saying, wait, what is happening here? Yeah, no, that's I, right. The face of the crisis were the migrant workers and the migrant workers, the most populous state which sent migrant workers all across India, UP and Bihar. In Bihar, the, the government was re voted to power. So it found it, it saw itself it's as a vindication of its performance. So as Asi says, but this time the the middle class has been disaffected. And Asi, what are we seeing in terms of the kinds of religious tensions and and socioeconomic divides that you talked about uh, during that first wave, you know, the, the Islamophobia, but also particularly vulnerable people being impacted? In this second wave, are those divides becoming greater or is the kind of the anger that's happening across society perhaps bringing people together? Look, there is a case to be made, perhaps, I'm not sure, of a crisis that can be a binding crisis, right? Bringing people together, uh, those who are, like I said, angry and frustrated at what's going on now. But I think what this crisis, is the second wave, also demonstrates to us is that it's not only the poor who are vulnerable, because the virus, especially um, as we're seeing what's happening now, the virus also afflicts a lot of people who are well-off. And many of those well-off people in India, India is Suffering uh, an epidemic as it, uh, of, of, of obesity, uh, diabetes, high blood pressures, what we call, uh, what we lump together as comorbidities. And that, that is, that is a middle class affliction, right? And those people are suffering. They are dying. They're seeing their loved ones dying and they want something to happen. There is no medication. There is no oxygen. There's no hospital beds and they're going out to, to the media and they're they're, they're they're venting their frustrations, and what we're seeing, which is quite quite uh, sad, is again a kind of um, uh, uh, well, as the economist said, the vanishing Modi. He hasn't gone to the media and spoken about this issue. But secondly, also the restrictions of criticism. So people who are criticizing the government are being targeted by some of the loyalists saying that you shouldn't criticize in the, in times of crisis or uh, in one case in um, Uttar Pradesh, uh, Yogi. 
Adityanath, who is the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, is actually is, is suing those people for uh, um, criticizing the government about the handling of the pandemic. So you have this kind of mix of, of both frustration, but also reticence to, to criticize the government. And I think there's an equally important issue, which is how the vaccine is being rolled out in India. And Bali, who's an expert in this, can perhaps uh, elaborate on that. But we're seeing a, a, a real divide in terms of the urban-rural divide in where the vaccines are going and how much there is to dispense. Yeah, no, so that's exactly right. Um, so India's vaccine, India was touted as the pharmacy of the world. Uh, to some extent, there is... Like, India has had a track record in this space. It produces 60% of the world's generic drugs. If you were from Africa or South, South America, or even in India, and if you've had a vaccine, it was largely produced in India. So it's had a lot, it has a lot of pharmaceutical capability. And this was supposed to be a strength in response during a, a health crisis. Uh, but we see that's not necessarily the case right now. We've just re- reported this morning that the Indian foreign minister, the external affairs minister, is going on a five day trip to the United States to procure vaccines. And this betrays the message, you know, that was made out earlier that India is going to provide vaccines to the rest of the world. Um, Can I just add there that that's something that I think we should point out. It's very frustrating. The United States has an excess of vaccines to more than 70 million vaccines that are just sitting on the shelf. And they should take uh, uh, the lead in actually giving it to poorer countries. The world itself now is vaccine at a 9% people who got the first dose. The majority of those vaccines are in the so-called first world. And like I said, this virus doesn't distinguish between first and third. And unless the U.S. and other wealthy countries step up and help India and other poor countries in Africa, yeah. this is we're going we're gonna to be uh, suffering from this pandemic for a long time. Yeah, the systemic inequities and vaccinations, right? So, and the, the transboundary nature of this is however vaccinated your entire population is, you are still susceptible to newer variants from different parts of the world. So it's sort of a global public good, uh, which needs to be rolled out immediately. But the sort of populist discourse around vaccinations and sort of vaccine nationalism that has permeated uh, our imaginations uh, doesn't allow this to happen. I want to come back to, to to what's happening in in India, but first, Bali, I I wonder, you know, this this point you make about the sort of the vaccine nationalism, and we're seeing, you know, debates about whether borders close or whether borders stay open. And, you know, I, I teach a course on global social policy and I often wonder, you know, what is going to be the future of global social policy? Do you see narratives that are counter to that vaccine nationalism and how strong are those kind of global arguments that we need to do what Asi is saying um, and, and think equitably across the globe? In terms of vaccinations, yeah. So, if you th- think about the response, larger political discourse around the pandemic, it's been very vituperative, right? So, centre-state relations across more gov- most governments, the United States, um, Australia, Brazil, they've all been very constrained. Strained. They've. Uh, it's been a very vitriolic discourse. So, so India was slightly different in that sense when, in December, January, at least, when the months where the pandemic had subsided to a large extent, and we weren't reporting those dreadful hundred thousand cases per day, um, you saw a more genteel and accommodating uh, narrative emerge, where even in India, the average political discourse, even political opponents to Prime Minister Modi was saying that, okay, yeah, we can support this global vaccine diplomacy. It's a good idea. Um, India should pr- be a source of strength and succor to different parts of the world. And uh, we should send out vaccines, use our strength and capability. But that 
quickly changed when the pandemic started to affect the middle class, right? In these middle class elites, especially when you had 400,000 cases a day. Um, just to give you some context, university, Delhi University, over the past month has lost 35 of its academic staff and who are under the age of 60, including the head of Department of Political Science. So these are elites, well-educated people for the first time who have access to the best hospitals who couldn't get care and access. So the, this course has changed to a large extent in India. Uh, and now you saw this last weekend, there were these posters put up by the, um, the chief minister's party of in the state of of the Union Territory of New Delhi, uh, Ahmadmi Party. And this poster is read in Hindi, Dear Mr. Modi, why did you send my children's vaccines overseas? Right. So for the first time, there's, there's no longer rallying around the flag or there's no longer uh, that India is going to be a source of strength to other countries. It's put our children first and put us first. I see uh, uh, some of your research has been with young people in India and sort of building on on those comments that, that Bali made, when we kind of look beyond the immediate crisis, beyond the immediate health impacts, what do you think the challenges are going to be for young people in particular as India moves out of this crisis, which hopefully will happen sooner rather than later? Well, in the best of time, the youth of India is facing uh, difficulties of unemployment. I mean, India has got a great youth dividend, but we know that uh, many of those people are sitting idle and, and looking for work and income and security. What is nice to see in the pandemic now is that the youth is actually coming together and helping those people in need. And this is especially across political lines. You see the Congress youth, unlike um, um, the BJP youth, the ABVP, there, there's, there's a lot in social media, a lot of mobilizing of youth to help the needy, to bring uh, care packages, to uh, uh, take them to different places in hospitals that they need, to bring uh, uh, resources. So that's, that's actually something quite encouraging to see. You see it in social media, people with large bags, bags of ba uh, bags, the, the, the youth are coming uh, and, and helping out and assisting, almost kind of replacing the infrastructure that is failing. Um, in terms of the future, it's, it's difficult to say. It's, it's a, it's always a, a challenge for the new generation to, to try and, and reestablish and re, recreate and, and kind of vivify a country that's been suffering so much uh, for the pandemic. And this is not only short term suffering. We're going to see this for the long, uh, the long durée, as it were, because there's, it's, it's, Actually, the pandemic itself is hurting the very uh, fabric of Indian society itself across caste and class divides. Of course, it's going to affect disproportionately the poor and dispossessed, but I think that um, uh, we're going to see this, uh, the ramifications of this pandemic for, for a long time. And Bali, just as, as we wrap up this conversation, you've talked about the way in which the pandemic has revealed the, the fractures in both health policy, but also in social protection systems. You know, what do we really be, need, need to be taking note of in terms of how those systems need to be thought about differently as India moves forward? Yeah, that's right. The pandemic has really brought these fault lines into sharper relief. Um, I think we've reflected a bit on the experience of some of our Southeast Asian neighbors and uh, their experience with social policy and health policies. For example, in Thailand, in, in Singapore, in Vietnam, what we've learned is that 
you can't afford to hollow out public health systems. Right? They were the first defense. And in India, this idea that these private systems are capable of providing health care to all at affordable prices has really been questioned for the first time. And the larger message over here is I think the governments began to realize this, that we need to invest in these rural public health centers, because if they don't have access to these rural public health centers, they go, they flock to the urban cities. And it's a layered with other social policy challenges because they don't have access to incomes or shelter or food over there. Um, so this investing in health, investing in base, the first rung of health, of primary health care, is something that this crisis has revealed the importance of. I think the government has begun to take attention. And for the first time, India health policy is on on the political imagination of people. So they're talking about this. And I hope that brings up uh, you know, increase in sustained investment in the public health system. The private health system is world class, you know, so I have no lament against that. It's this public system that needs to be rebuilt. So we will need to draw this conversation to a close, but I feel it's a conversation that we could continue for much, much longer. But can I, can I draw it to a close by asking each of you one rather difficult question? But if you were to make one recommendation to policymakers on the lesson that really needs to be learned out of what has happened, um, over the past year, year and a half in India, um, so that we don't see subsequent waves and we deal with these underlying issues that you've both been talking about. What would that one recommendation to policymakers be in terms of the lessons they need to draw out of this experience? Um, Asi, perhaps I can ask you that rather tough question first. <laughs> Look, I think it's, on one hand, it's a very tough question because there are so many underlying maladies. And especially India is a still a, a developing country, as it were, and there's a lot of issues with infrastructure and um, and uh, policy. But And um, I think what Bali says is, is really true. The investment that in the, the that India has in a public health system, in sanitation, in water, uh, the infrastructure is decaying. These are the places where you need to invest. Another place to invest would be education, to be able to spread effectively the word about public health hazards. So just in short. No, I agree with us. The investment is really, really important. Um, more than it's also a, public, uh, a health policy crisis and a social policy crisis. It's also a crisis in public management of how the government failed to respond um, effectively, and it goes to those fundamental challenges of not. Um, screening the horizon with a crisis antenna. What is the worst possible outcome? How can we prepare for that? And once we start expect, ex, uh, explaining or accepting outcomes in the domain of losses, we become more accepting of those outcomes, of these negative downside um, outcomes. So in, we have to be more prudent in thinking about what the worst possible scenario is and how can we shore up our defenses against that. So I think that will also were brought to light by this pandemic and especially the second wave and how the government responded to it. So I think it's instructive going forward um, to reflect upon how India managed this and what we can learn from uh, its responses. 
Thank you both so much for joining us today. I've found this conversation so insightful. We've been seeing the horrors on our, our TV screens and in the media to have the opportunity to go a little deeper into these issues and also to hear about some of those bright spots. You know, Bali, the, the examples that you pointed to where things have actually been managed quite well or where we see that emerging innovation. Um, and I see, you know, the, the comments that you made about young people really coming forward and, and supporting supporting people within their communities, I, I think are things that we don't often hear about and things that are so often, so so important for us to know. So thank you both for sharing your, your insights um, and your research experience um, of India with us. And hopefully we will have you back again towards the end of the year uh, to talk about these things once things unfold a bit further in India. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Asi. Good to Thanks. be here. So listeners, thank you so much for joining us today for that incredible conversation about the complexity of what's happening in India at the moment. Do reach out to us and let us know your thoughts on this conversation, but also on the other things that we're talking about on the pod. You can reach us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum, or you can use an email and reach us at podcast at policyforum.com. Probably the best way to contact us if you are a Facebook user is through our Facebook group. If you just put Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, we will pop up right in front of you. We will be back again with another episode next week. And my pod partner, I'm happy to say, Anna Greta Hunter, will be back again with me next week. But for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>